Hey there, this is part two of a two-part Curious City story on John Keehan and the infamous Dojo Wars of Chicago. If you haven't heard part one yet, you'll want to go back and listen to that first. Just a warning, there is swearing in this episode, and rather than fill it up with a lot of bleeps, we decided to just let people speak the way they spoke. Also, please be prepared for explicit descriptions and depictions of violence in the second half of the show. By the mid-1960s, a new character began to emerge on Chicago's martial arts scene. A man who wore, I kid you not, a cape, spandex, and he walked around with a gold cane with the head of a lion for a handle. He claimed a heritage of Spanish royalty, drove around in a Cadillac with his family crest emblazoned on its side. He was a top martial artist in the city, and his name was Count Dante. Count Dante was famous before Bruce Lee. That's documentarian Floyd Webb. He's been helping us tell the story of the dojo wars in Chicago. This is pre-Chuck Norris. This is all before all of those guys. But Dante wasn't a rival of John Keehan, that revered and reviled black belt, karate sensei, street fighter, and showman that we told you about in part one. Count Dante was John Keehan. Or, should I say, a persona John had created out of thin air. John would tell a story that he was not Irish. He was really Spanish. He was left on the doorstep of his Irish parents. His then-wife, Pat Harpold, said John had always been prone to exaggeration. Note, she has a neurological condition called spasmodic dysphonia, which is why there's a slight tremble in her voice. Pat says that this new persona John had made up would emerge at home in fits of anger. He was having a tantrum storming up and down around the apartment with his velvet robe on, saying, I am King John, you will listen to me. He was starting to call himself Count Dante at the end of our marriage. You just don't get it, he'd say. You common people in the world just don't get it, because he was royalty. Over time, John began to believe his own lies, including an entire backstory of being kidnapped as a baby in Spain, brought to Chicago, and left on the doorstep of the Kean family. Of course, it was not true. I said, you know, ha ha ha, that's funny. You know, you're, you know, you're Irish. You look just like your mother. He lived in a fantasy world of things that he wasn't. Eventually, John Kean would legally change his name to Count Juan Rafael Dante, and he'd go through a transformation in appearance, style, and temperament that would lead him down an increasingly darker path. After the break, the Count takes on a dynamic sidekick and brings full-contact martial arts to the masses. That and more, just ahead. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I discovered authors I had never heard of and I'm really happy that I did. 
Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdat wherever you get your podcasts. John Keehan, now going as Count Dante, had formed an elite group of martial artists under his command, top fighters who had been through his brutal initiation process. Count Dante called his clan the Black Dragon Fighting Society, or simply the Black Dragons. In Chicago, there was a rival group to Dante's. They were called the Green Dragon Society and included some of his former students who had defected. The Green Dragons had a storied history that dated back to the early part of the 20th century and were known for their use of traditional martial arts weaponry, things like spiky maces, samurai swords, and menacing battle axes. The Black Dragons, on the other hand, was a brand new organization, dreamt up by John. And some of these guys were loyal to an almost cult-like fault. One place both groups would prove their mettle was in off-the-books battles between competing martial arts schools, the Dojo Wars. Art Rapkin, Dante's good friend and ardent follower, said that when the Black Dragons were involved, those wars could get brutal. Those fights were like Tarantino movies with the martial arts things like in Kill Bill, they got out of hand. Which brings us back to the question that sent us down this rabbit hole in the first place. What were the infamous Dojo Wars of Chicago? They were dust-ups between schools over a variety of things, ranging from insults to egos to money to honor and to romantic entanglements. When Dante and his crew weren't engaged in fights on and off the mats, they would cruise the bar scene looking for fun and trouble sometimes interchangeable ideas. They'd often make their way to the Playboy Club for a nightcap. Playboy bunnies were, if you don't know, women who served as wait staff at the clubs. Their outfits consisted of bunny ears, a puffy tail, a collar and bow tie, and a black corset. It was connected at the bottom, and then they would pull it up in the back, trim it so that it fit your hips, and start cinching you in and cinching you in, and cinching you in, and cinching you in. That's Jean. We're going to call her Jean because she doesn't want to use her real name for reasons that will become apparent later. Jean and John knew each other growing up because their dads were good friends. They even dated for a short while when Jean was in high school, till he stood her up at prom. Jean was in her 20s now and had long since put him out of her life. She was a bunny at the Playboy Club near John's Dojo on Rush Street in Chicago. She stumbled into the job on a bet, and she hoped the gig would pay well enough so she could move out of her parents' home and figure out what she wanted to do with her life. She'd been working there for a while when, one day, after her shift... I got this dozen red roses and then a note on black stationery with red gold writing, and it was a, a line from a famous poem... Love's flames and how the ashes can be rekindled into a blaze or something like that. And it was signed Count Dante. And they're like, the hell is Count Dante? She ignored it, but this mysterious Dante was persistent. So eventually... I called the number and he said, okay, he said, I've got to tell you the truth. He said, this is John Keegan. And I was like, what do you even say? It's four years later, five years later, you abandoned me, and now you show up and you want to make nice? 
He promised her that he was a changed person. And he started telling me how he's going to spend the rest of his life making it up to me. I always loved me and had always loved me. But I was just too young at the time. Eventually, Jean gave in. They were now an item again, and it wasn't long before they'd move in together. Later, as a token of his love, he told me that he had a gift waiting for me in the cargo department at O'Hare. And we drove out to O'Hare. He picked up a baby mountain lion. Another pet lion. A mountain lion, so smaller than an African lion, but still a lion. As they drove back to the dojo, Jean says she could hear the baby mountain lion making chirping sounds like a little bird. They named it Stasha, a name that means resurrection. Now it's 1968. Count Dante is 29. And that year, he becomes, quite literally, a character straight out of a comic book. Inside issues of Batman, Archie, and the like, Dante took out ads featuring a cleverly illustrated image of himself, menacingly posed and ready to strike. His auburn hair, now dyed jet black, permed into an afro. His facial hair, carefully manicured to give himself a sinister, devilish look. He was trying to really promote the most effective strategies that you could use in the fighting arts. Again, Art Rapkin. And at the same time, he also was reaching out to try to become more acknowledged and get more celebrity. He wasn't satisfied with just being a successful, well-respected martial artist. He also wanted to be like Elvis. Dante took out ads in comic books and other zines to promote his book called The World's Deadliest Fighting Secrets which promised to teach everything from breaking bricks to, quote, maiming, mutilating, paralyzing techniques he'd learned as a martial arts master. Takers could learn his special choreographed pattern of moves, which in martial arts is called a kata, that was very much on brand for Dante. John's kata was called the dance of death. You were doing things like striking the throat, striking the eyes, tearing the face. In the ad, he billed himself as Count Dante the deadliest man alive. The showman in him was coming through again, undermining his many bona fide skills and accomplishments. This put Dante at further odds with the martial arts community, many of whom felt it was a betrayal, making a mockery of their art. For reasons that likely only make sense to Dante, by this time, he'd also opened a hair salon called the House of Dante and claimed to be hairdresser to the Playboy Bunnies, though his then-girlfriend Jean says, as far as she knows, she was the only bunny whose hair he ever styled. And she wasn't impressed. It looked awful. He was terrible. He was a terrible hairdresser. Another idea Dante dreamed up at the time was to create a sidekick, and so he convinced Jean to take on that role. Enter the Dragon Lady. I was his front. He made me a black belt. I mean... It was almost like I was knighted or something. Shazam, you're a black belt. Really? And I was the Playboy Bunny who had a black belt. And she becomes the Dragon Lady of Rust Street. The double bill of Playboy Bunny and deadly martial artist attracted exactly the kind of public attention Dante was hoping for. Jean did interviews as the Dragon Lady, where she'd tell wild stories of employing her karate skills to take down would-be attackers. 
The couple appeared on the cover of National Informer, an adult-oriented tabloid. The headline, The World's Deadliest Fighter is a Hairdresser. And Dante and the Dragon Lady would do local TV together. Like, one time, they were on a local talk program, The Chicago Show. The host told the audience that the Dragon Lady was going to break wooden planks, but Jean says she wasn't expecting it. Luckily, Dante had scored the boards to help her out. The Dragon Lady sat in front of a stack of wooden boards set up on bricks, live on TV. Well, here, let me show you. And I broke boards. She smashed through them, though apparently they hadn't been scored enough. And my hands started swelling immediately. <laughs> Jean played it off, hiding her hand throughout the rest of the interview. And I was offered a job on that show as the co-host. He didn't like the idea that they offered me that instead of offering it to him. And John wouldn't let me take it. Still, Jean began to embrace her new persona, one half of the menacing couple of mayhem, the Dragon Lady and Count Dante. Oh my God, I look back. I I started to believe my own PR, and it was all nonsense. It was all lies. All of this promotion was leading up to one of the first major full-contact karate competitions in the U.S., the World Fighting Arts Championship Tournament an arena-sized tournament where virtually any move, no matter how aggressive, was allowed. This is what Dante had been building toward for years. With one outrageous promotional ploy after another, like the time he roped his young apprentice Art Rapkin into fighting a bull to the death. Before I could even say anything, he would look at me and go completely straight-faced, you know, like, you can do it. That attracted my attention. I was in for that kind of stuff. I was a legend in my own little mind. The police shut that one down before it could even begin, but it's emblematic of the lengths to which Dante would go to sell a ticket. Floyd said the police weren't the only ones trying to shut him down. The martial arts community was totally against full-contact martial arts. They didn't want to see it. They thought it was dangerous. They, They said people would be killed. On September 7th, 1968, the day of the event, crowds began to file into Chicago Coliseum, Members of Dante's Black Dragon Fighting Society were there to compete. So too were members of the rivals, the Green Dragons. The fighting was fierce. In that way, the event was a success. But attendance was lower than Dante had expected. And so, financially, he now owed people a lot of money he didn't have. Instead of showing the rest of the martial arts community that he was still a visionary for the sport, Dante was left humbled and humiliated in front of them. And also broke. Once again, Dante hatched a plan and brought in his pal Art to do the dirty work. John comes up to me and goes, listen, uh, I want you to go to the box office and we're going to go there and take all the receipts, which is a lot of money, all cash. I want you to take them and deposit them to the bank. I said, okay, you know, like, yes, sir. Well, right before we got to the box office, he says to me, but you're not going to make it to the bank. I'm like, what? You're not going to make it. You're going to get robbed. Well, what you're going to do is you're going to take the money and then you're going to report to the police that you got robbed by a couple of guys with a shotgun. And I did that. I did that for John. And I also, it mentored me. You know, I started learning about how to pull off a, a lie and make money. 
how to get away with something, how to circumvent the system. After the break, Dante continues to try to find ways to circumvent the system. And along the way, he continues to falter and grow more violent. And then Dante and his black dragons face their biggest challenge yet. Stay with us. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Another warning before we continue. This segment includes graphic depictions of animal abuse, domestic violence, and death. The violence that Dante wanted to bring to the competition, the violence he brought to the streets, the bars, the dojo wars, it didn't stay there. Dante brought it home. Gene describes for me one horrifying moment that took place after their pet mountain lion went after Dante one night. She remembers that night vividly. She says Dante raised his hand to Stasha, and... She went after him, and he broke her leg and knocked out one of her tough fangs, and I was screaming and begging him to stop. When Dante finally stopped, he wanted to have the animal's other fang taken out and have it declawed, both of which are cruel in their own right. Jean says she couldn't take it anymore. He told him I'm leaving and I'm taking her with and before you could hurt her anymore, and uh, that landed me in the emergency room. She came to my front door with, I don't know if she ever told you that, that's how I met her. That's Pat Harpold again, Dante's first wife. Jean says she tracked Pat down because she was the only one who knew Dante the way that she did. And while Pat told us she wasn't physically abused by Dante, then John, she'd been through a lot of verbal and emotional abuse with him. And she came to the house with a Two black eyes and beat up. I, my face looked like a basketball. You would not have recognized me. Nobody did. And my jaw had been dislocated. Both of my eyes were closed. This wasn't the first time, or sadly, the last, that Dante physically abused Jean. But it all finally came to an end one night, after Dante hit her one too many times. And I grabbed one of his knives off the table, and when he came down to hit me again, I held up the knife. She said she slashed his hand. He looked at her confused about what had just happened. And he started to realize that if he he had to sleep with one eye open, I'd gotten to that point. Jean says that was the end for her. The end of the dragon lady. The end of her time with John Keehan or Count Dante or whatever the hell he wanted to call himself. By 1969, they were done. And it took a lot of work for me to become one again. So many times I should have been dead. So many times I should have been dead. And I just, every day I know that I live by grace and I am not a Bible thumper. My poor, poor guardian angel, bless her heart. Pat and Jean remain friends to this day. In 1969, Black Belt Magazine did a big spread on Count Dante and the martial arts scene in Chicago. But it wasn't celebratory as Dante might have hoped. It was just the opposite, titled 
The Trial of Count Dante. Its author interviewed Dante, as well as his supporters and detractors. In the article, the author writes that a storm had been rising in Chicago for some time. He says that on one side were, quote, serious students and practitioners of karate. On the other side, he says, was an armada of warriors who hold John Kean, known as Count Dante, in high esteem. It had become a clash of martial arts versus the cult of personality. Many were tired of John and his shenanigans, and things were coming to a head. In early 1970, the bad blood between the Green Dragons and Count Dante's Black Dragons was continuing to build. And when the Green Dragons began badmouthing Dante as a bit of a phony, someone passed his peak, that bad blood became absolutely toxic, setting the stage for the infamous Chicago Dojo War. April 23, 1970, started out as what might have been a typical Thursday for the students of the Green Dragon Society. A cool spring day, students sparring in front of mirrors at their dojo. An arsenal of traditional martial arts weaponry lining the walls, all at the students' disposal. Meanwhile, at his Southside dojo, unbeknownst to the Green Dragons, Dante was busy reaching out to his Black Dragons, assembling a small group to go with him to confront the Green Dragons at their dojo. It's unclear what exactly set him off that night. Among Count Dante's crew was his best friend and legendary brawler, Jim Konsevic. Jim idolized Dante, even groomed his hair and beard to resemble that of the Count. Art says that if Dante wanted one guy there, it was Jim. He was a big guy. He was like 6'3", 265, something like that. He was a tough guy. I mean, he was a judo and aikido champion, a karate champion. Oh, he was vicious. There was nobody more vicious than him. That night, the Black Dragons piled into their cars and headed north. Around 10 p.m., Dante and his crew rolled up to 3461 West Fullerton, home of the Green Dragons. Standing in front of the dojo, some accounts say Dante banged on the door and flashed a badge, saying he was a cop. I said, uh, no, that's not police. I said, that sounds like Count Dante or John Keon to me. That's Pat Garrison, a Green Dragon instructor at the time, and one of at least half a dozen Green Dragons standing on the other side of the door that night. The recording is from an interview he did with documentarian Floyd Webb. Patrick says that standing next to him that night was another green dragon, 23-year-old Jose Gonzalez, Joe. And I told him, Joe, do not go near the door, and the door burst open. Green dragon members grabbed some of the weapons off the wall, and the melee began. And all of a sudden, I see this hand come flying and smack him in the eye with this steel ball, so Joe hit the ground. Dante would later claim he'd gouged Joe's eye out with his bare hands. About that time, all the rest of these people come charging in through the door at us. You know, things got a little busy for a little bit, we'll say. In a blaze of fists, feet, and weapons, the contest turned bloody quickly. One of Dante's guys took an axe to the back. Some guy swung what they call a Chinese short axe or battle axe. 85 stitches worth. Pat Garrison recalls what happened next to one of his fellow green dragons. Concebeck hit him first, and these guys are trying to kill our butt, you know. Jim Konsevic was being attacked by a mace, a stick with a ball at the end of it, 
covered in spikes, gouging countless holes in his hands as he defended himself. But Jim continued fighting. Meanwhile, Dante was busy, as he put it, fighting off multiple green dragons, using his deadly fighting skills to gouge out eyes and lay bull-stopping blows. That's one account. Others claim he was hiding under a desk. Jim Konsevich now took aim at another green dragon. 20-year-old Jerome Greenwald said he was hit in the back and knocked down, according to the Chicago Tribune. Accounts say that Jerome grabbed a 14-inch dagger off the wall to fend him off. As Jim continued toward him, throwing punches along the way, Jerome's dagger plunged into Jim Konsevich's body. Some say accidentally. Jim was gravely wounded. Holding his neck, he made for the front of the dojo, blood pouring down his body. And then he somehow, nobody can figure out to this day how he got out the door. He took a few feet out the door onto Fullerton and collapsed. You could swim through that sidewalk. Jim hit the concrete and bled out. Count Dante eventually made it out to the front where he saw his best friend's lifeless body. Again, documentarian Floyd Webb. When the cops came, Kean was outside standing over Jim Konsevich's body yelling, they killed my friend. Jim Konsevich was just 26 years old. Everyone was brought in for questioning. Jerome Greenwald was charged with involuntary manslaughter. Count Dante was booked for assault and battery for leading the attack and impersonating a police officer. And he was arrested for causing the death of Jim Konsevich. It was the accountability statute. The charges against Jerome Greenwald were eventually dropped, but Dante faced a steeper climb. After months of waiting, the case against Dante finally went to court. It was a bench trial, no jury, and for reasons that remain unclear, all charges against him were dropped. Dante's attorney, Bob Cooley, wrote about the case in his book, When Corruption Was King. And he says that the judge was angry with both Dante and members of the Green Dragons who testified in court. Bob writes, the judge screamed, you're each as guilty as the other. I've never seen such a pack of lunatics in my life. After scolding everyone, the judge dismissed all charges. The martial arts community was rocked in the aftermath of this dojo war. And the reaction was swift, harsh, and nearly unanimous across the country. People were horrified. I've been told the Konsevich family and many others, including longtime friends of John's, blame John Keehan directly for the death of Jim Konsevich. So much so, some even wanted him dead. In just a decade, from 1961 to 1970, John Keehan had gone from a promising young martial arts visionary to larger-than-life supervillain to a disgraced has-been. In the years following Jim Konsevich's death, Floyd says John continued to be haunted by the death of his best friend. He never recovers from Jim dying, really. I mean, emotionally, he just doesn't get past it. John continued to oversee his dojos, but was less engaged in the day-to-day. Instead, he had numerous other side hustles to distract him, including running hot dog concessions at Comiskey Park. He also co-owned a used car dealership, ran a porn shop, and hovered around the edges of organized crime. Plus, he continued to sell his book, The World's Deadliest Fighting Secrets, along with some related merchandise. It's a business that became quite lucrative for John. In the fall of 1974, he was questioned in connection with the Pure Later money heist. 
a mob-related vault robbery that netted over $4 million in small, unmarked bills. At the time, it was the largest cash robbery in U.S. history. While many involved in the heist were caught almost immediately, there's still, to this day, more than a million dollars left unaccounted for. According to Bob Cooley, the lawyer that helped John escape charges in Konsevich's death, thinks John got his hands on some of it. They'd become friends, and Bob says he got a call one night in May of 1975 from John asking him to come over. When he arrived at John's apartment, he was shown a cardboard box filled with cash and assumed it was the Purolator money. But Bob had mob ties and knew better than to ask. Early in the morning of May 25, 1975, less than 48 hours after John allegedly showed Bob his box of cash, John's second wife, Krista Conrath, found John unresponsive. As with many major incidents in John's life, and now death, accounts vary wildly on just what led to his passing. At just 36, John, Count Dante Kean was dead. When Jean, the dragon lady, saw it in the paper, she called Pat Harpold, John's first wife. And she said, the son of a bitch is dead. Pat knew exactly which son of a bitch Jean was talking about. Another big thanks to Floyd Webb. His research over the years as he's worked on his yet unreleased documentary on the life of John Kean is instrumental in our understanding of the man and that era when John loomed large over the city's martial arts community and brought it national acclaim and notoriety. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation and is produced by Jason Mark and me. Adriana Cardona-McGeegat is our reporter, and Maggie Sivet is our digital and engagement producer. Marie Mendoza is WBEZ's podcast fellow. Susie Ann and Johanna Zorn edit our show. I'm Joe Dassault. Thanks for listening. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org slash curious. Thank you.